everybody knows that we're going to have autonomous vehicles. Um, but how are we going to address that? What is that actually going to look like? Um, I'm working with a community right now in Chattanooga, uh, and we're asking the question, would it be possible that in Chattanooga you didn't have to have a car to have a prosperous life? I mean, just think about that. What American city could you move to today where having a car is optional? There are only a handful of them. If you have ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual team and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional performers in athletics, music, entertainment, and business, so we can all learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. What will life be like for you in 2030? With all the new technologies, trends, and uncertainty today, looking out 10 or more years might seem impossible, but not according to today's guest. Rebecca Ryan is a futurist who helps communities, companies, and individuals shape the future they want to create. Rebecca is the founder of Next Generation Consulting. She is resident futurist of the Local Government Institute of Wisconsin and board chair of the Institute for Zen Leadership. In our conversation, Rebecca is going to give us some advice for how we can be better futurists for our communities, companies, and for our personal lives. Rebecca, welcome to 12 Geniuses. I am so glad to be here. It's, I've had a ball listening to the first few episodes of this, and it's wonderful to be on the show with you. It's great to have you. Let's start with the state of America. It's a big question. Is life in America better than it's ever been? The meta answer is it depends who you are. It really depends who you are. If you are a member of uh, the working class, um, it's not better than it was in the 1970s. If you're a person who's um, well-educated and uh, out of debt, um, life maybe is better for you, but it really depends. Let's start with the people for whom life is better. Why is it better for them? Well, we've seen this um, divergence. You know, if you look at the status of the middle class over time, like since the Carter administration, we're seeing that the middle class is not making the same kinds of gains because things like healthcare and education, um, housing have all gotten so much more expensive. So for those folks, their dollar isn't going as far. And um, increasingly, you know, we're in a knowledge-based society. So if you are a knowledge worker, um, life is better for you. There's more demand for your skills, and that supply and demand ratio means you're making more money. Um, so it really is it really is a different answer depending on where you sit. When we look at metrics around happiness and opioid use and suicides, they're all headed in the wrong direction. What are the reasons for this? If I were to make a conjecture, um, you know, you use the word happiness. And what we know is that a person's happiness um, is tied in a way to income. So I believe the latest figure I saw is if you're earning $72,000 a year, that's kind of the happiness cutoff. 
And then you have diminishing returns. You know, more money than that doesn't have the same linear impact on your happiness. Your happiness kind of tops out at that. And when you look at how many American households or Americans are earning $72,000 a year, um, it's not equally spread across a population like it was uh, generations ago. And so I think some of it is just the sense of, some of it is a sense of hopelessness. And some of it is a sense of like, man, no matter what I do, I can't get ahead. So in some states, I'm thinking specifically of Western states like Washington and California, if you're middle class, your household is holding five jobs, five jobs, right? And that's to be middle class in California. So again, kind of goes back to the cost of being middle class is higher than it's ever been. In your book, Regeneration, you explain that we are in winter in America. What do you mean by winter in America? America goes through these seasonal cycles, spring, summer, fall, winter. And my premise in Regeneration is that America entered winter in 2001, and each of these seasons takes about a generation. So we will emerge from winter in about 2020. For your listeners, it might be helpful to think that We've been through three other winters. The first one, the American Revolution. The second one, Civil War and Reconstruction. And the third, the Great Depression. And what do all three of those winters and the current one have in common are are these things. Winter is a time when America reflects. Like, America sort of goes through a breakdown. And then we reflect and we say, okay, who is our country for and what is our country for? You know, during the American Revolution, it was this question of, um, were we going to be a British colony or were we going to have sovereignty as a nation? Who and what is America for? What do we stand for? Then during the Civil War and Reconstruction, I think everybody remembers that from history, who and what is America for? The Great Depression, you know, the series of, of social and economic reforms that came out during the Great Depression, you know, we decided to protect our elders we, and so we had Social Security that we, was created during that time. We decided to protect farmers with crop insurance. We decided to protect banks and the individuals who kept their money in banks through FDIC insurance. So again, we were asking, who and what is America for? How can we uh, become a better country for more people? And that very much uh, is the same tone of this current winter time period. You mentioned that winter started, this cycle of winter started in 2001. Was 9-11 the impetus behind that or were there other signs that winter was coming? Yeah, I believe 9-11 was kind of the, the cannon shot that started the whole thing. And every winter has started with a similar cannon shot, which you only know in hindsight, but the Boston Tea Party starting the American Revolution, uh, President Lincoln's election starting the Civil War period, you know, before between the time that Lincoln was elected and he moved into the White House or took over the presidency, 11 southern states said, we're out of here, you know, so his election set this off. And then during the Great Depression, it's it's actually a bit uncanny how similar the Great Depression's start was to our Great Recessionary period. So the Great Depression, sort of on a Friday afternoon, stock markets were tanking, so there was a, a meeting of the, you know, some of the largest blue chip companies, U.S. Steel being front and center, saying, all right, come Monday, you know, we're really going to pour all that we can into this to try to stave off. Well, over the weekend, individual consumers and stock owners like you and I talked 
ourselves into a frenzy as well. And then the run on the banks happened on Monday, and it didn't matter what U.S. Steel and others had planned. We're sitting here. It's December 12th, 2018. You're saying that winter is likely to end around 2020. That's not very far away. Do you see signs that we're entering the end of winter? When I ask audiences, you know, show of hands, how many of you, I give them three options. How many of you feel like you're still deeply in winter, frozen, stuck? Option two, how many of you feel like things are thawing? Option three, how many of you feel spring is happening? We're seeing new growth. Most, over 70% of the audience is in thaw or springtime growth. So I think despite what the national headlines say, despite the bad news bears, um, most of America has turned the corner from winter to spring. And the signs of that, from my perspective, at a very high level, no matter where you are in the country, are, remember I said during winter, we question who we're for and what we're for, right? So the, the Roberts Supreme Court said gays can marry. That was a pretty interesting and clear signal of who and what America is for. I want to expand on that because one of the things you write about in the book is that after winter, we start to expand our human rights, typically human rights, correct? And and so, you know, we're, we're coming into spring very soon. What human rights do you expect to continually expand? I think the, the big one right now is immigration reform. You know, we are a country of immigrants. We have the dreamers here. It's been very contentious. But what's interesting is I think everybody actually privately agrees on what we need to do, but it's still a very political and politicized issue. I want to ask about one other potential human right that's been in the news here in America, and that is prison reform. Is that one that you see as as being on the table for significant adjustment? Yeah, in fact, um, I'm so proud. You know, I work a lot with um, communities, public sector, and also quasi-public sector, so chambers of commerce, economic development entities. And I feel like some of the most interesting prison reform work has been happening because of chambers of commerce and economic development organizations. Because, you know, I was trained as an economist. And so if I'm going to be like a super linear, nerdy, geeked out, quanty economist. Every single person represents human capital or labor. And so if we're incarcerating a whole bunch of people, and then we're complaining about having shortages in middle skill work and so forth, you know, there's got to be a, um, a solution there somewhere. So how do our laws have to change? How does our institutional racism have to be addressed? And so, for example, in Oklahoma City, the chamber there has done a really nice job of leading the way, having this conversation about prison reform, um, kind of all the components around that. And they're wrapping it, you know, or they're looking at it, I should say, they're looking at it through the lens of economic development. So you're trained as an economist and... I had a conversation with another economist recently, and that was we were talking about the expansion of the American economy when women came into the workforce. Uh, and, and he was saying, well, actually, women didn't take men's jobs. The economy expanded. Can't you make the same argument around immigration and prison reform? If you talk to anybody in construction, anybody in service, the service businesses, restaurants, hotels, hospitality, um, anybody in agriculture, 
they're scared to death of more punitive immigration reform because it's such an important part of their workforce. So to me, it's about stabilizing our current workforce and then, yes, about growing the pie. We're ending winter. What does spring look like? Uh, Making the turn from winter to spring isn't something that's going to just happen to us. We also have to happen to it. So we have to help make the turn from winter to spring. And there are a few principles. If you look back over our previous three winters, there are a few principles that become kind of self-evident about what it takes to make the turn from winter to spring. One of them is this idea of, uh, again, from nature, emergent properties. You know, that if you put, so to go chem geek for just a second, if you put hydrogen and oxygen, two gases together in the right combination, it creates a liquid. That is kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. You put two gases together, you'd think if you're a pedestrian like me, oh, it'll make another super gas. Or No, it makes two hydrogen, one oxygen makes wetness. It makes water. That's amazing. And that's one of the things that we're starting to see now. So I'll give you an absolute example. B corporations. So these for-profit companies that are amending their bylaws to be benefit corporations to say that the way we're going to make profit, stay in business, is actually going to benefit our communities, benefit our employees, benefit our supply chain. So uh, I'm a B Corp. I hang out with other companies that are B Corps. And it's like an emergent property. We can put making money together with taking care of the supply chain in a way that you know raises the boats for everybody. You mentioned the concept of B Corp. Can you talk about a, a corporation that most people would know about that is a B Corp or Benefit Corp? Yeah, if you don't know about it, your kids do. Tom's Shoes, right? So they're a buy one, give one. Warby Parker. I don't know if Warby is actually a B Corp, but again, it's a buy one, give one. Um, but then there are others, you know, like Dannon is uh, a B Corp. There are some there's some big ones. Patagonia is a B Corp. In the book, you talk about the graying and browning of America. Can you explain what that means and how these demographic shifts will change the way we live and work? So the graying of America is this idea that 11,000 people are turning 65 years old every single day and they're living longer. So we will have one of our largest demographics, the baby boom, will be our largest ever generation of senior citizens. And that is going to change a lot of things. It's already driving demand for healthcare. Healthcare was the only industry that sort of kept our economy afloat. It was still adding jobs during the recession because of the aging of America. So the graying of America is about us getting older and baby boomers getting older. The browning of America is about how our complexion is changing. So the data point on this that I think is amazing is between 2000 and 2010, if you look at that census period, over 90% of all the growth in cities was as a result of people of color. More people of color being born um, are growth in, in those demographics. And so I think some of what, you know, the, the white nationalism that we're hearing about now, it is that drip, drip, drip. And all of a sudden people are like, oh my goodness, you know, we've got a, we've got a situation on our hands here. And the truth is that this has been happening in America for a while. Um, and, you know, unfortunately in America, we've, we also love a scapegoat. And so the tension around race, um, the renewed tension around race is about the once majority population 
getting freaked out, good and freaked out, about the fact that America is no longer as homogenous as it once was, and we're looking for a scapegoat at a time when we're in winter and things feel more wobbly than ever for a lot of people. You spend a lot of time working with communities, helping them plan the next 20 or 30 years, which sounds incredibly daunting, but I know you have a methodology for it, and we'll talk about that in part two. What kinds of things are these communities doing to improve the quality of life for their citizens? Well, one of the benefits that cities have is that they're expected to make 10-year plans. Or like if you work in transportation, it takes a long time to build a road or put in a light rail station or any of those things. So they have to look 10, 15, 20 years um, into the future. So one of the things that um, cities are already doing, as an example, is they're looking at, okay, who is our city likely to be? Um, And I'll give you one example. Um, Affordable housing. Affordable housing used to mean one thing. And for many people, it was Section 8 housing, you know, like low income housing. But affordable housing now means a lot of different things because of looking into the future and seeing who our residents will be. So if you are um, a a baby boomer who's retiring and you're thinking and you're downsizing, you're like, I got to get out of this big family house. My kids have left. I'm an empty nester. To you, affordable housing means I do want to sell my home at a premium, but then I need some place to live afterwards. It's maybe a little more small, but I'm not willing to move into you know, a retirement center. So what does affordable housing mean for empty nest baby boomers who are in that transitionary stage of their life? Affordable housing for young professionals, especially those who are moving to larger cities, affordable housing for them, you know, is, is, is it's an entry-level home. Um, it might be a condo. It might not be a condo. It's going to be a more simple home. It's not going to be that big family estate um, that, that a lot of boomers, you know, grew into. But even those starter homes, especially in big communities, are just incredibly out of reach. So you talked about affordable housing. What are some of the other issues that these communities are trying to address? Yeah, transit for sure. You know, the idea, everybody knows that we're going to have autonomous vehicles. Um, but how are we going to address that? What is that actually going to look like? Um, I'm working with a community right now in Chattanooga, uh, and we're asking the question, would it be possible that in Chattanooga, you didn't have to have a car to have a prosperous life. I mean, just think about that. What American city could you move to today where having a car is optional? There are only a handful of them. But increasingly, that's going to be the reality of our cities. It's going to have to be. When an organization is planning a decade or more out, how can they make sure they're, they build enough flexibility or agility to handle the unexpected? I love this question because um, the future is never a fixed point. And the um, the example I love to use is that uh, if you see photographs of the North Pole, and I don't mean like the ones taken from space, but people who have actually visited, um, there are a series of like GPS location signal direction finders, um, you know, slammed into the sl- snow on the North Pole. Well, why is that? It's because the North Pole is actually moving. So if you're headed to the North Pole, you have to GPS coordinate it because it may not be in the exact same spot as it was three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, which is just a meta version of what we're talking about here. The future isn't a fixed point. So when we work 
with a community, for example, and they say, hey, by 2040, we want to be in this place. We want to be a community that doesn't require cars to be prosperous, as an example. Great. Let's set our course on that today. And then let's come back in three or five years and see, A, does that still make sense? B, how do we need, has the North Pole moved? You know what's different. Our guest today is futurist Rebecca Ryan. When we come back from this short break, Rebecca will give us advice on how you can more reliably see the future at your organization and in your own life. This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year, and diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly, too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, and a host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. We are an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work so you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and innovative business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantage of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. We are back with futurist and community visionary Rebecca Ryan. We are going to shift gears and talk about how individuals and organizations can improve their ability to predict the future. Rebecca, each summer you lead something called Futurist Camp. Sounds fun. Can you explain what that is and who typically attends? Yeah, so Futurist Camp is, well, there is a camp component to it. People come together for three days at truly like a camp for adults. There are canoe races and hatchet throwing and, you know, all kinds of fun for adults that you can, and it is at a camp setting. It's in the trees, in the woods, on a lake. Um, but there are no PowerPoint decks. There, um, you know, there's basically very little wireless internet access. Um, and the point of those first three days of residential camp is to dip people into foresight so that they understand what it is, how it's used, how it's different than strategic planning so that they can, if you're thinking about it in a martial arts perspective, you know, your first belt is a white belt and your last belt is a black belt. I'm trying to get people their white belt in foresight so that they're just dangerous enough. After folks leave camp is once a month for six months, we regather um, on Zoom on on a web call and I bring in faculty from around the world who talk about how they're using foresight within their communities or companies or whatever the case is. And it's the only place I know that you can get this kind of training in foresight because we just don't do it in the U.S. like we once did. I know you work with a lot of community planners. Who else would be an, a, a good attendee for Futures Camp? Anyone is welcome. Um, people who have planning, strategy in their, in the, their job description titles, uh, executive directors of associations have come. Um, anybody is welcome. It does skew public sector, but we've had a lot of, we had the largest kazoo manufacturer in the U.S. at our most recent camp. You also mentioned foresight and the foresight model. Can you explain what that is and how it's used? Yeah. So when I use the term foresight, I'm using that interchangeably with futuring. So foresight and futuring are the same thing. It just, you know, to me, they're synonymous. And what foresight is, is a, is a process. It's a multi-step process of looking at the future, 
in a very analytical way. You know, a lot of people are afraid of the future because it sort of has emotional undertones. This takes the emotion out of it and it puts kind of logical, um, data-driven um, plausi- plausibility back into it. And so where does steep come in, steep methodology or four forces of change, the four forces of change model? How does that fit in? And maybe you could talk through what steep stands for and sure. what the four forces are. Sure. So the foresight framework is a, is a seven-step process Um, the first step is defining the domain that you're trying to explore. So if we were working on transit in Minneapolis, it might be transit 2040. You know, we're looking at the transit system within this specific um, service delivery area through 2040. Second step is to identify the forces and trends that are likely to impact that. Now, this is usually data. You know, these are things that we're pretty sure are going to influence that domain in the future. So you mentioned STEEP and four forces. STEEP is an acronym and it's really easy to remember and it's a really nice way to sort of think about what categories of trends might impact you. And it stands for society, technology, economy, environment, politics, STEEP. And that's one way of categorizing these trends and forces. The second way is to use the four forces model, which Cecily Summers wrote about in her book. Cecily is a Minneapolis-based futurist. I love her book called Think Like a Futurist. And uh, the four forces model, it's similar to Steep, but what I like about it is Cecily says, no, there's actually a priority to the trends you need to think about. And the priority order is this. Number one, resources. Number two, technology number three, demographics, and number four, governance. So resources trump technology. Like as we know from Flint, Michigan, you have a water crisis. It doesn't matter if you have open government or transparent government. Nobody cares. They care about safe water. So resources, air, water, um, access to energy would be in there. You know, all those resources that we need to live, breathe, and, and move through life. Technology piece, you know, this is all, all different kinds of technology. It could be desalinization out, if you're out on the West Coast. Um, you know, it could be um, autonomous transportation, you know, those kinds of technologies. Third thing with respect to demographics, you know, people are what make up the economy. So we've got to be mindful about who, who is our community becoming. And then the fourth thing being governance. Governance is two things. It's certainly the rule of law. So if we pass a new policy, like Madison just changed its comprehensive plan, and now you can have more density in in one area. Like they're really promoting if you're a two flat, can you make it a three flat and so forth. So that's a policy change. But it's also about the rule of markets. And one of the things that has been, I think, very exciting, and it started during the Great Recession, is this notion that um, we can now, through the Jobs Act, the Federal Jobs Act, it's a misnomer. It has nothing to do with actual jobs. But um, through the Federal Jobs Act, you, if you are starting up a new venture, you can get a microloan from me as an individual. So crowdsourcing, right, that's now legal. And it didn't used to be legal. You used to have to do that through SEC rules and, you know, uh, other protections. So rule of law, rule of markets under governance. Can you talk about a case study of a company you've worked with or a community you've helped using this model and the results they've realized? Yeah. Um, so I work primarily with communities or the public sector. And um, this might seem like a kind of a pedestrian example, but 
Charleston, South Carolina, many of us know it because we've visited there, and it's one of the most hospitable places. I think Condé Nast has named it like the best place to visit for years and years and years and years. And I was doing a project in Charleston because they were blowing through all of their population targets. Like people said, oh, you're going to grow by, you know, 10,000 households a year. And they were just blowing through that. These are example numbers. These aren't actual numbers. So um, some of the partners in Charleston, led by the Chamber of Commerce, They said, we need to do some futuring around what our quality of life is going to be like in 10, 15 years time. What is our quality of life going to be when we have a million people in our metro? So we did this work. And one of the things that we realized was the way that they fund their infrastructure, Bridges Roads in particular, has to change because, um, you know, a lot of their roads and bridges were graded at a C or a D level by um, the Society of Civil Engineers. And there was a, there was, it, Charleston is built on bridges. And if you, if one of those bridges goes down or a lane on those bridges go down, it is, commuting is already like the single, mo- the single daily activity most injurious to happiness because it's so unpredictable. So they were just panicked about like their infrastructure. And what happened as a result, if you can believe this, is the chamber led an initiative to increase the gas tax. So we had a chamber of commerce leading the charge to increase a tax, which is the opposite of what most people think. Most people think chambers are anti-tax, they're pro-business, they're this, they're that. But they saw the data. They saw their future. And they said, if we don't fix our infrastructure We might be able to attract people, but we will not be able to retain them. We will not be able to move them effortlessly through our region. So that was a pretty cool outcome, and they got it passed. Season one of 12 Geniuses is really structured around this idea of change, and so we've had a lot of experts talking about different types of change. So if you're to give one piece of advice to a citizen looking to stay prepared and relevant in a future that's a decade from now, what would that piece of advice be? My one piece of advice is to read or relate more broadly. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you tend to watch Fox, dip into some MSNBC. If you tend to watch MSNBC, dip into some Fox. Even more importantly, um, you know, if you're always thinking about politics, um, as the people in my household are, then maybe you need to start thinking about, um, you know, the social changes that are happening, but but basically get out of your comfort zone. We all, as we get older, tend to get into these lanes that we can too easily stay in. And the reason I say read more broadly or relate more broadly, develop friends with people who don't do what you do. Um, the reason that's so important is because if you want to be future ready, change happens from the margins. And the more you are exposed to the margins, the fringes, change starts there and it works its way into the mainstream. So if you want to be future ready, you need to pay attention to things that people are just now starting to talk about, starting to think about. Um, And those things, the chances of them coming into the mainstream are higher. If you want to be future ready, you need to know about those things. This is great because what I hear is empathy building. You're talking about expanding your range of relationships, which by default helps you expand your empathy. You know, I'm, I hadn't thought about that, but when you use that word empathy, I was with a group of um, county commissioners working on the future of their association. 
you know, thinking about the future of counties and the future of the association that serves county elected officials and what counties have to do in this day and age is really an act of God. You know, they've got to run the county hospital. They have to take care of the sheriff. They, there's so many things that they do on a social services front uh, and our, our needs there are growing. So um, we talked about, you know, what is the one skill that all of us need so that counties can run more effectively. And empathy was like the killer app. It was like the killer skill. As you see the future, is there a trend that you find particularly concerning if you're for humanity? Yeah, I mean, I think the haves and the have-nots, it, this, is a, this is a huge concern. And, you know, one of my undergraduate degrees, I had a minor in poli-sci, a major in international relations. And when you look at the theory of revolution, what revolutions happen when people are promised A, but they get something much less than A. You think about the, the Arab Spring, that was it. That was a generation whose parents got a really nice standard of living and who they themselves could not get jobs. That is revolution. And so I think in America, you know, we have long had this promise that you can make it here. And um, it doesn't matter where you start, you can end up, you know, fulfilling all of your fulfilling all of your dreams. And increasingly that is not happening. And that is a recipe for revolution. This is the last question. Is there a trend that you find particularly hope inspiring? Yes. Um, this is, is going to sound like a cliche, but I actually have good examples. Um, I find the next generation insanely inspiring. So we talked about Tom's Shoes as an example of a B corporation started by a millennial. I think about the young evangelicals of America who they got together and they got their elders, you know, running the evangelical churches of America to include climate change and our need to take care of our physical environment as part of the charter. That's been unprecedented because climate change has often been a Republican versus a Democratic issue. And here are these young evangelicals making the case with their elders to say, we need to admit that this is happening and this is part of what you know God wants from us to do is to take care of his creation. That it feels amazing to me. Um, and, then, and then finally, the number of people who are women, who are people of color, who are running for public office. You know, the, these midterms in 2018 have been something. And that gives me hope. And it's right on time with spring. You know, spring is always about different people doing different things in new ways. It's about regeneration. I said that the last question was going to be the last question. This is going to be the last question. Rebecca, how can people find you? Easy. My name, RebeccaRyan.com, and Rebecca is spelled R-E-B-E-C-C-A, RebeccaRyan.com. And we will include that in the show notes. Rebecca, thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world, influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.